But knowing my investors as well as I do, knowing that, I know that I would not invest in that deal. If I didn't invest in that deal, I can't really talk to my investors about it. I'll be on an expert panel of apartment syndicators for a friend of mine, Rod Cleef, for a three-day multifamily event that he's putting on August 24th, 25th, and 26th. Rod Cleef, myself, and the other panelists are going to teach you everything you need to know so you can buy your first multifamily deal within the next 90 days. The sooner you RSVP, the cheaper it'll be. If you go right now, it's incredibly affordable. So hurry and RSVP. That link is in today's show notes. So scroll down right now and click. All right, guys, I'll see you in Chi-Town on August 24th through 26th. Are you an accredited investor and looking to deploy capital into one of the strongest asset classes on the planet? If you said yes, I want to invite you to join DJ for a free webinar this week that will show you some of the opportunities that our company is focusing on. You'll find that link in today's show notes. It's time for the Creative Real Estate Podcast, your source for out-of-the-box real estate investing strategies brought to you by realbluespruce.com. Welcome back to the Creative Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Adams, and this is right where you're going to be when you're going to learn all the most creative strategies to do all sorts of -of out-of-box real estate investing. And Ike Mudavana is going to be one of your favorite people to learn from because he's got a strategy where he was able to get into multifamily a lot faster without doing all the headache stuff. So Ike's been able to find this little strategy, this little niche within multifamily syndications that's allowing him to pick up a lot, a lot of doors. He's already done five deals with this and we'll get into the exact number uh, of doors that he has a little slice of the pie on. But there are so many strategies, guys. If you're trying to go from single family to multifamily, there are so many strategies. And with Ike Mutabana today, you're going to learn really well with this strategy. I also want to kind of point you in the direction of his podcast. It's called Sideshow Business. And that's a great podcast for you to kind of understand Ike and to get to know what he's doing. And he, he obviously shares a lot of really good information. With that said, Ike, welcome to the show. How are you? Thank you. Thank you for inviting me to the show, Adam. I'm really excited. Well, it's, it is fantastic to have you. And I know that I met you at, the, at Joe Fairless's event. And That's you've right. done a little bit of business with Joe Fairless. I know you've raised some, some money for some of his deals. Is that correct? That's correct. And so that's a great uh, way for you to partner up with somebody with such a, a great name out there. He's been running a daily podcast for the last five years, I believe. He's got 1,300 episodes which is kind of crazy. And you found your way to partner with him by, I think we're going to talk about raising money from your friends to go into his deals. That's correct. So let's, let's go through and talk a little bit about how that's legal for you to raise money for his deals. All right. Yeah. So that's a great point, um, Adam, that you bring up right off the bat. And normally, if that's all you're doing, you're just raising money, that's really not legal, right? Okay. I mean, that can only be done by someone who has a broker dealer designation by the SEC and you have to be a registered investment advisor or you have to be licensed as a broker dealer. Um, so that is not where I play. My, uh, and the one big difference again is that those people, they're allowed to actually solicit for investment, which I don't do. I don't go out there and pitch openly asking for investments. Where it becomes 
um, possible for me to participate with this particular strategy is that I become a part of the general partnership itself. So which means that I play a role outside of raising money. So in the general partnership, almost everybody is raising money, but that becomes one of the roles I play. Apart from that, I also form a relationship with the investors that I represent. So mm-hmm. it's almost like I am their voice on the general partnership, um, ensuring that their interests are kept first. Mm-hmm. Um, I am ensuring that I stay in touch with the investors. I let them know what's exactly going on with the deal. Um, when it's closing, as the business plan is executed, as we go through the different phases of renovation, raising rents, all of that stuff, including making sure that they're, they're getting their preferred um, investment return checks. Are they getting their K-1s on time? So it's almost like I'm serving those investors on great. the entity. I like the way you, I love the way that you say that. And that's great. And that's actually for my company. That's how we started to have to feel about raising money. And just for the listeners, there comes a time when you're thinking, oh, I need money so I can close. I need money so I can close my deal. Right. And if you can just shift your focus and really say what, it, what the real truth is and say, you know, I, here's an opportunity that I can offer to somebody. I can provide a service for somebody. It makes it become a lot easier to raise money. So you've obviously been successful and you're already in that mindset. Right. You're in Dallas, Texas. Where are the investors living that you're raising money from? I think they're all over the US. Um, right now, perhaps I would say that my network is perhaps 50, 50, 50% in Dallas and 50% all over the US. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when I started off, it wasn't that way. I, I, when I, the reality is when I started off, I was new to Dallas itself. So most of my investors came from across the US and as I've managed to do more work, prove myself um, and bring value to investors, my network has grown in Dallas itself as well. On those five deals that you've raised, about how much fun, how many dollars have you raised from your network? I've done so far a little north of $3 million. Awesome. Yeah. And um, I want, we're going to go into some details on how you were able to create these networks and mm-hmm. meet these people and talk to them about the opportunities that you have available sure. for them. Mm-hmm. And let me ask you first, when you're, because you said it's not legal for somebody to be raising money unless they have a Series 7 license, right. and you're doing more than that. So that puts you as an owner on the general partnership, and we'll define that in a little bit. My question to you is, when you're raising the money, mm-hmm. are you talking about these deals like they're your deals? Is that one of the main strategies that you have? Well, it's not a strategy. You have to. It is my deal. I mean, I would not want to talk to investors if it was not my deal. Great. Right? I like that. So it absolutely has to be your deal. I mean, when I get, uh, when I start working with a deal partner on um, potentially working with them, at that point I take, even though I may have come late into the deal where they may have done the initial work on the acquisition process, they may have done the initial due diligence, I take the approach as though I am just a late partner that entered the game. Yep. So I do. I go through their underwriting as though it was my own deal. I evaluate as though it was my own deal. I ask questions as though it was my own deal. And if you'd like, I, I can provide examples of where I've actually turned down deals. Yes. Um, and not gone to investors. 
Yes, definitely. And we'll go a little bit more into the underwriting as well. So talk about when you were doing some underwriting and you found that you shouldn't be uh, part of the sponsor on this deal. So um, as an example, right, there was, there was one deal where um, it was a, a deal where the, there was a little bit of speculation involved. The deal sponsor was planning to do a refinance within the first year of um, getting that deal. And because of the fact that the deal was a little bit unstable in nature, it had, didn't have sufficient occupancy, it wasn't qualifying for a more traditional loan, they were going to take this really high interest rate bridge loan. And their goal was very aggressively to move towards improving the occupancy and then qualifying for a traditional loan so that they could pay off the bridge loan. Um, a very high risk strategy, which perhaps works for some people, but knowing my investors as well as I do and knowing my own, I mean, my investors tend to reflect my own, um, my own risk profile. So knowing that, I know that I would not invest in that deal. If I didn't invest in that deal, I can't really talk to my investors about it. So that's mm -hmm. where I walked away from that deal. Great. You, you brought up a lot of really um, interesting points and a few words that we'll probably have to define a little bit, sure. talking about what high risk is. Um, and you said it was unstable based on occupancy. And there's a lot of, of the listeners that might not understand what that it means. Sure. And we'll also want to go through the bridge loan as well. So let's start there and just kind of say, you know, what does unstable mean when it comes to multifamily investing? All right. So I think banks have their own definition, perhaps. And I think the rest of us may have our own individual definitions. Banks typically tend to have a definition that they like 85% or higher for traditional loans. Um, 90 is even better because that makes the loan a lot more uh, stable from a bank's perspective. I personally like it when a property is around 90% because that still leaves enough room for value add and yet not have to struggle where in the renovation period, you will take a dip. And at that point, you don't want to, you, you'll dip down into the 80s. But if you start with something that's, let's say, 80 or 81% or even lower, now your dip is going to be much more dramatic. And the ability to recover from that, that increases your risk in being able to match the returns you're projecting. So, and, and so that means that Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, other lending institutions might be looking at unstable, meaning that it has less than 85 or 90% occupancy. Right. And so that's why we have to do what's called a bridge loan. So could you explain that? Right. So bridge loan is typically where um, some kind of a lending agency, a lending broker, or even a private lender will lend money um, for a deal that is um, not something you can get from a traditional banking source, but they will lend that money to you with a really high interest rate and perhaps with certain conditions around it. Um, that conditions could include maybe getting a higher prepayment uh, penalty of some sort. It could be where they get a, a slice of the equity or something like that, which allows them to, to make that bet on that deal. So these are usually players in the industry who, have, you know, who are already familiar with that type of, of property and that type of um, business plan. And um, you know, they put in that money in order to get a significantly higher return than when they do it in a traditional loan market. Excellent. How many doors do you own now then today with that 3 million that you've raised? Um, close to 2,000. 2,000 doors. So, and how long have you been doing this? 
um, just under two years. Okay, so for the listeners, let's point that out. You could, in the next two years, own 2,000 doors by doing this strategy, which is just raising money from friends and family. And so far, Ike has raised about $3 million. I don't think that's a crazy amount of money. I think a lot of us could find friends and family with that amount of money that wanted to put it into safer asset classes like multifamily. My follow-up question to that, Ike, is have you been investing alongside your investors into these deals? I have. In fact, when I started this, I actually started as a passive investor almost three and a half years ago. Okay. Uh, And that's how I, in fact, met Joe. I started investing passively, met Joe through a common friend. He was still in the early stages of his own investment uh, career. Mm -hmm. And so I was one of his early investors, I think. Um, Got to know him through that process. And that's how I even got introduced into this business itself. Okay. Yeah. What made you decide to become a money raiser? If you were being a passive investor, what changed that for you? Yeah, so that's interesting. I, um, about two years ago is when I decided that I really was intrigued. I'm really interested in this business. So I decided I was going to go in all, you know, all out. I was still working full time at that time. Um, decided to do this on the side and started working on studying this business model, learning about it, um, getting some mentoring from Joe. And in the process, I learned enough to know that here are the steps I need to take to get into the market and find deals. But one of the steps that I also figured out was that a lot of people fail or really struggle. I don't, let me not say fail, but struggle when they get a deal mm-hmm. and they get to a point where now they've got money to raise, but now they don't have enough of an investor base to tap into. So they've put that on the back shelf thinking yeah. that the deal is the main thing and then realize last minute, oh my God, I've got like 30 days left. I'm raising, I'm raising my hands as, <laughs> as an experienced person who put that on the back burner the wrong right. way. So I said, you know what? I'm going to raise money in advance. I'm going to there you go. talk to people in advance. Um, I'm going to um, try to figure out what it is that um, incentivizes people from my network to be interested in this business. So I started reaching out. I prepared like a sample deal package of what a deal would look like when I got it and, um, and started explaining the deal because a large, large number of my investors were actually first-time investors. They'd never really encountered multifamily. Most of them, their understanding of real estate was single-family houses, buy them, put them on a single tenant rent, and they're done. So this was a concept that blew their mind. So a lot of it was just educating them. And I, and I started doing that and um, it became so good that I was able to put together a list of people who are willing to put in a million dollars and um, were ready at that point. Problem is I had no deal to show them. So now I ran into the reverse problem. I had investors lined up, but no deal to share with them. And as time went by, they started losing patience because I had, you know, really pumped them up. I had, you know, help them understand the value of these deals, but I had nothing to show for it. Do you think that it would be appropriate in a time like that to work with not just one deal sponsor like Joe Fairless, but to make sure that you had two or three people that you had relationships with that you might be able to put your friend's money to a deal a little bit faster or what, what would be your thoughts on that? Yeah. Today, that's what I do, Adam. But that's not what I did that time. And that's not what I would, 
I would do even now, if I was starting now. Mm. At the time of starting, I would still do it with a single sponsor. Okay. Even if it takes some time. There's a simple reason for it. That when I am going to investors and offering to bring them into a deal with me, they're doing it to a large extent based on their trust in me. I mean, Mm -hmm. I'm educating them. I'm helping them understand the deal structure, the underwriting, all of that stuff. But at the end of the day, it's a trust relationship. So if they're trusting me to do bring them a deal that is not going to lose them their shirts, I need to trust the sponsor that I'm working with. Because at the end of the day, the sponsor is the one who's going to execute the business plan. Um, I will have some role to play in that, but that role will not be substantial enough to significantly influence how that deal ends up working out. So which means I need to have a huge amount of trust in that deal sponsor. So for me, that, that trust had already built up with Joe because I had been a pure passive investor with him well before that. Yeah. So now I knew Joe, I knew his ethics, I knew how he functioned, I knew how he actually managed these deals. And I knew that if I partnered with him, I could bring that same value to my investors that I got from him. I love that. That is, that is really, really awesome. I have a lot to cover before we get into the final five. Okay. So let me see if we're able to do this today or if we need to have you back. All right. Uh, so number one is that these deals that you're offering your friends to join in partner with you on are 506B. So it's a regulation D 506B. And to go through that quickly for the listeners, it just means that Ike is able to raise money from his friends and family up to 35 people don't have to be what they call accredited millionaires or making 200 to 300K a year, up to 35 of them. So he's been able to make his network grow so that he has more friends and family. And I kind of want to get into that strategy on what he's doing to grow his network and to educate his investors. My questions for you, Ike, is, is how you do that. And my examples are perhaps you're going and speaking in front of groups um, all over the country or all over your state. Perhaps maybe your podcast is helping you make those relationships. In what way for you are you growing that 506B friend and family network to raise 3 million plus to get your last 2,000 doors? Okay, great question. So first, I'm going to try and see if I can go through it quickly so that we can, you know, bring the maximum value to your listeners. But the first thing that I I did was um, that I made a list of everybody that I had um, become familiar with or people who knew me reasonably well. I wouldn't say that every single one knows me perfectly well, as in they know me inside out, but enough to know that they trusted my, uh, my judgment and my character. So you have to have at least that level of relationship with them. Um, I just made a list of everybody I knew from the past, you know, 15, 20 years being in the um, industry, Um, not real estate, but I used to be in the tech industry in Boston. So I made a list of everyone I knew, um, found out where they were and realized that to a large extent, I was really out of touch with many of them because that happens, right? You move on from one company to another, you move from one location to another, you change houses, you change cities, and you start losing touch with people, even though they know you well. So I started figuring out who are the people that I needed to get back in touch with. The people I knew and I was in touch with regularly, I just had to pick up the phone and talk to them saying that, look, I've started this new venture. I'm doing this. You want to, you know, let's, let's chat about it if you're, if you're curious about it. 
But for those that I had not been in touch with, what I did was I wrote up this email, almost like a catch-up email, where I explained to them my life journey for the last two to three years, just purely for catch-up purposes, just to help them understand what transitions in my life I'd gone through, both on a personal level, on a business level, on a career level, um, and simply a, a, an email that said, let's touch base. Let's see what's going on in, in my life and your life. And that allowed people to reach out to me and share what they were doing in their life. But when I wrote that email, I also touched upon the fact that I just moved into the multifamily space. And that raised a lot of questions from them saying, you know, here's by the way I'm doing, I'm in Michigan, I'm doing X, Y, Z. Um, loved reading about what you're doing. By the way, I saw you mentioned that one line about doing multifamily. What the hell is that? And that just starts a conversation. So maybe not more than 5 to 10% of the people who replied back actually expressed that interest. But that was enough to get started. Because once I, once I got one person from, let's say, my graduate school network who asked me about it, next thing you know, he's reaching out to all of our grad school friends and saying, hey, by the way, did you know Ike was doing this? <laughs> and suddenly I start getting. So it's, it just becomes a natural, organic way in which people start reaching out. So that is the first way that I, I did it. The second way, as you mentioned, was a podcast where my podcast is called The Side Business Show, where I um, focus on helping people start businesses on the side along with their careers and create means by which they can achieve financial independence. Real estate plays a very big role in that. There are other mechanisms as well, which I do feature. I feature other types of businesses, but real estate definitely is one of the key types of businesses that does that. So Every once in a while, I will have an episode where I'll talk about multifamily. But more interestingly, the guests who I feature usually are not from the multifamily space. And they will then, you know, want to know what I'm doing. And that builds a new relationship as well. So right. it just creates this nice holistic circle of relationships that starts going forward. I like that, Ike. And that's one of the things that really helped me with my meetup group in Denver to be able to kind of grow it to become the biggest meetup in Denver is maybe I'd reach out to a wholesaler that was very well known. And then I would reach out to the wholesalers network and maybe I'd reach out to an apartment investor who was well known in the community. Like the, um, like when Joe Fairless came to the event, I reached out to other people that might know who he is. And so I just, I really want to commend you for what you're doing with your podcast on not really niching down too much, but being a little bit broad and bringing in a lot of different types of people so that you can grow your network faster. So I, I agree, Adam. In fact, that's how we met at your network, at your uh, meetup. Yeah, that's right. Okay. So this is a great thing for the, for the audience to listen to. So check it out. I, I invited Joe Fairless to come in and do a syndication panel along with a couple other famous real estate or excuse me, apartment syndicators through my area. So we had three famous syndicators from Denver, and then we had one person flying in. And I knew that Joe Fairless was already going to be actually at the best ever conference, which he runs once a year. And okay, so what I did is I, I reached out to a few people, maybe like a hundred. I know that sounds like a, a lot, but um, really sometimes I do a lot more than this. So I reached out to a lot of the people. There was 500 people, I think, scheduled to go to the Best Ever Conference. So I actually personal messaged Ike Mudavana and uh, many, many other people. And I said, hey, I know you're coming here for this. 
I bet you'd also want to come to my group. So we ended up having over 60 people on the waiting list. Okay. So I was kind of getting stressed out, wondering if I should be getting a bigger venue or not. There, it, the, the venue was completely full and we had 60 people on the waiting list and it was last minute and I was trying to decide should I you know, book another place or is that going to confuse people too much? So that was a lot of fun. And that was, you know, there, there, there's a little hack for you guys on what makes, you know, the meetup so successful. So I getting back to exactly how you were able to raise all this money. So you talked about number one is you went in and called all of the people from your tech industry in Boston, all of your friends and family, you made a list of them, and then you either reached out to them by phone or you reached out to them with that just touching base email saying, here's my business, personal and career, what I've been doing, and, and I've been getting into multifamily. Right. Number two is you're talking about your podcast and you're inviting people from all walks of life to come and, and talk to you. And obviously, these are successful people, and right. some of them may want to join you, and they just didn't know how to do it. That's, that's very, very brilliant of you. Is there a third way that you've been increasing your network? Yeah, the third, the third way I've been doing is more by promoting organic circles. So, for instance, I know I have a really good friend from old days who is a dentist, and you know he knew nothing about real estate except for the fact that he had a couple of single-family houses. So our relationship was strong enough that he invested with me. And then in long conversations, he said, you know, Ike, I think there are, I've got all these other friends who are also dentists and doctors, and I know they know nothing about it. Can we co-host something that will bring them in? He wanted to just pass them on. I said, I can't just, I can't just simply reach out to them because I don't know them. And that would not satisfy the existing relationship criteria. Yep. But if I could build a relationship with them, that would help. So what yep. we did was we said, we put together a dentist webinar sort of, which was hosted by my friend, where he brought all his friends into that webinar. He and I sort of co-presented the deal in which he had invested with me and just talked to it, through it, just explaining why my friend invested with me and what he's getting out of it. He talked about the awesome K-1 depreciation statement he got. He made <laughs> it very personal. Next thing you know, they were all reaching out saying, you know, introduce us to Ike. So that led to introductions, led to more phone conversations and getting to know them and then you know, several of them have since then been investing with me. So creating these organic circles through your existing friendships and having them create mutual value for each other, I think helps as well. That's really good. And if I have time, I'll ask you a couple of questions on that. Is there any others that you wanted to touch on besides those three? No, I think these are the top three. Okay. So as far as promoting the organic circle with more friends you know, that are dentists and doctors, uh, co-hosting events, it's something I'm starting to do as well. And I've, se I've seen massive, massive success with it. Right. And so this is great for the listeners, whether it's for podcasts, whether it's just through organic circles or something that I'm doing with my meetup groups, I'm reaching out to some of the other top people and I'm saying, let's put on an actual event, not just a meetup, but let's put on an event together. And I've got a strong network and you have a strong network. And that, that way we can kind of uh, cross-pollinate with each other. More of my people can know you and vice versa. Right. And already that's starting to turn into relationships. And, what, and Ike mentioned something that's very, very important for anybody getting involved in this. You can't just promote a deal to people you don't know if you're doing the 506B. 
Exactly. If you're doing 506C, you can promote it to anyone you want. You just have to verify that they're accredited. But with this, in this case, um, Ike is make, putting across extra effort and time to educate people what's going on. And he's not letting people just into his deals. He doesn't say, oh, as a matter of fact, I've got one today. Right. It's, it's always, you know, let's build a relationship. And maybe when I have one in the future, it'll make sense. Because we need to be completely legal that Absolutely. there's no question that when we're raising money. So it's more of an education step in the beginning. And then eventually you're able to move into the other steps. So I really wanted to point that out. How else do you educate your investors? Because you said some of these guys are new. Right. Some of these people, the men and women that are investing with you, haven't ever done multifamily, but they want to invest with you. What are your ways of getting them education? Yeah, so I think what I do is a few different things. I send out a, a regular email to my list as it grows. Um, and this email is a very conversational email because remember, I'm talking to people I know. I'm talking to people who are with whom I have a relationship. So it's not a marketing-y kind of email with lots of flashbang and graphics and stuff. It's actually a simple plain text email that talks about a few things. Number one, it talks about, you know, a little bit about my own journey, where I'm going. It talks a little bit about the performance of the deals that are already going on right now, um, where I'm not, I'm not looking for new investments. They're already in place, but I'm just reporting saying that, look, you know, we did this, it, the occupancy went up or went down or, Here's a problem we ran into and just wanted to, you know, um, share that with everybody. And then I'll share a, a few tidbits of information from the market about what's going on. So if I find, for instance, that cap rates are getting compressed. Now, people might read that and not know what the hell is a cap rate and what's the meaning of getting compressed. So I'll, I'll then put in a little blurb explaining what that means. And I'll invite them to call me if they need to ask me more questions about it. So make it very conversational, very informational. And that really helps drive interest in people wanting to learn more about it. Um, even those who've, who, with whom I have relationship, but who have not necessarily done anything with me, they enjoy reading that and they'll reach out saying that I'm not ready yet, Ike, but I, I enjoy what you're sending me. So that's, that's a great way to have a long-term relationship. Yeah. So that's one of the, the common ways I'm doing it. Perfect. That, that is a really great way. Are you also um, trying to speak and present at events around Dallas or... I would love to do that. I haven't really spent time on doing that yet. Mm -hmm. um, I think that is the next step. That's the next step in evolution of, of where I'm going. Um, but I think right now my focus is, to be honest, Adam, I have probably not tapped into more than 25% of my, my existing organic network. So while it's great to go out there and try to talk and, and bring in lots of new people, I think it's also important to bring more from my existing network into the pool as well, mm. uh, because that creates a nice little holistic way in which your, your um, trust relationship grows much, much better. When yeah. I go and speak, then you're right. I, I will end up getting 10, 15 people approaching me wanting to talk to me, but it takes much longer to build a relationship with those people versus people from my existing network. Okay, perfect. Let me ask you this. So you, you talked a little bit about something called a sample deal package. Right. And I think that that's the one thing that my company was missing when we got involved into this. And actually, our, our coaches, our mentors told us how important it was, but something just kind of 
went over my head and I said, I don't need that. Like when I have a deal, I'll be able to do this. And it put me in a really, really tough position. Can you help our listeners so they don't have to ever go into a tough position? Can you teach them a little bit more about that sample deal package and why you did it? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think the, here's the thing, right? Almost everybody learns more easily when they see something real in front of them versus something that is abstract in nature. Almost everybody, even, even an abstract mathematician, when it comes to something like real estate, will want to see an actual building in front of him. So what I do, do basically is what I did. I don't need to do that anymore. But what I did was when I started off, I took one of the deals in which I was a passive investor. And I used information from that to, to sort of anonymize it. I removed the name of the property. I removed some of the specific unique characteristics of that property and made it a little bit more generic in nature. So talked about that. The first one was a 300 unit. I called it a 300 unit property without really naming it, without giving the location. Um, I did use screenshots with permission uh, from the deal sponsor for that one, which was Joe, in fact. And I said, is it okay if I use that? And he was perfectly fine with it, as long as I didn't compromise any information about the deal. So I took that, I talked about the concept of preferred returns, the concept of how equity is split, the waterfalls. Um, There are some who understand that well, some have no clue what the hell you mean when you say a waterfall. So I went through all of that and I created a, a sample package that was far more comprehensive than a traditional investment package that I send for a deal nowadays. Because that was purely meant for education. So I would talk about um, uh, something like cap rate. I would explain what that means. I would talk about something like what is uh, cash on cash returns and I would explain what it means. I would talk about IRR and then I'm sorry, I would say I would try to explain an IRR (laughs) because not too many people outside uh, certain circles understand the concept of an IRR. But I just went through a systematic, so where a deal package uh, presentation might be, let's say, 30 slides, mine was 60 slides. So I was explaining along the way and I made it clear to people that, look, this is not how a real deal package will be. A lot of things will be assumed that you understand it, but this is for you to understand it. So read it, understand it, call me up if you have questions, let's talk about it so that when a deal comes across, you don't have to call me to understand it. There you go. That makes it a lot easier, I'm sure. And you've you talked about a few things that we've already discussed before on the podcast. And so for interest of time, IRR, cash on cash, cap rate, pref return, right. and equity splits are something that I won't uh, ask you about today, but we, will you in fact go over the waterfall? Yeah, absolutely. So the waterfall is basically the, the, the um, hurdles that a deal promoter sets for themselves on being able to benefit from that deal. Remember that, when you're taking other people's money, right? Essentially, that's what you're doing. You're taking other people's money. You have to be responsible toward their money and you have to be able to give them the kind of returns that you're projecting for them. Otherwise, there's no reason for them to invest. I mean, I regularly get questions from investors saying, if I can get 8% from an S&P 500 index, why am I putting money here? So in order to answer that, you have to be able to project certain returns and be able to actually deliver. How do you incentivize yourself to deliver? That's the hurdles. So you say, for instance, that the first 8% of cash and cash returns goes to the investor. Only after you've met that will you make a certain asset management fee. And only then will you have a split in the equity in terms of cash distribution. If you hit a certain uh, threshold in terms of the IRR, only then maybe that you'll go from an 80-20 or a 70-30 to a 50-50 split. So 
you're setting these performance thresholds for yourself that reassures the investor that you are incentivized to do the best possible work in order to get them the best possible result because only then will you get your profits from it. I love that. Thank you for going through all of that. There's one thing that I made a note about earlier on and we haven't really covered it. We'll get that and then we'll go right into the final five. And that is, we were talking about how you did your five deals, which add up to about 2,000 doors. And on each of those, uh, Ike owns approximately three to 10%. I wanted to be clear because does that mean three to 10% of the building or is that three to 10% of the general partnership? Of the general partnership. Okay. And so this is for the listeners that 10% of the GP may be, maybe, maybe general partnership owns 30%. Is that a good average? Would you say? Usually? Yes. Okay. It could be a little above or below, I'm sure. Right. But maybe if the general partner owns 30% of the deal and the, and the equity partners, the passive partners that Ike's raising money from so that they can be a part of this, own about 70% of the deal. Uh, we just kind of need to divide that 10 into by 30%, which is, right. so you, uh, and you'll really own maybe a little less than 1% of the deal all the way up to three or 4% of the deal right. of the whole deal based on your, um, your efforts. Is that accurate? That's accurate. It depends on the, um, on who is raising the most money really. And, and who has the most investor relationships in the process. So, um, in, in many of the deals I've done so far, they've been much larger in nature. Each deal has been 300 to 500 units. And there's a larger number of general partnership players involved in putting the deal together. So that's the reason why the GP equity gets diluted to some extent. Mm -hmm. But there's one deal that I'm doing right now where I am the only person raising money and managing the investor relationships. Um, and I get 35% of the GP on that. Wow. Right? That's great. So that it completely depends on the deal size, number of players involved, and what your role is within that. I love it. I, I wish we could spend so much time with you. This strategy is extremely remarkable. I love the way that it is working out for you and for your partners, for your friends and family that are joining you in on this because everybody's making money and it's definitely helping to benefit Joe Fairless, because he put, can put more of his attention to some of the other things that he's good at where he doesn't necessarily have to raise this. I think it's a giant win, 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 a triple win all, all across the board. Thank you for going through all of those details and letting me kind of pick your brain so the listeners could do what you're doing. We're going to get right into the final five, but we have a quick break. Hi, I'm Rod Cleef, and I'm host of the Lifetime Cashflow to Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'm also an apartment investor, and I've owned over 2,000 homes and apartments so far in my career. Now, on August 24th through the 26th, I'm going to be hosting a three-day multifamily boot camp in Chicago. And I've asked Adam Adams to be an expert on a panel there with some other members of our multifamily mastermind group. This event's definitely going to sell out. We've got fantastic early bird pricing right now. So don't wait. Go to multifamilybootcamp.com or text the word multifamily to 41411. And Adam and I look forward to seeing you in person in Chicago, August 24th through the 26th. Want daily interviews with real estate investors and none of the fluff? Go to bestevershow.com where Joe Fairless interviews daily real estate investors and entrepreneurs about their best advice ever. 
Go to bestevershow.com. Adam Adams has one of the most active meetup groups in the world. I've personally been to one of his meetups, and Adam packed that house with over 80 investors at lunch and another 60 on the waiting list. Find out the exact six things he did to create one of the top meetups on the planet by texting the word meetup to 555-888. Text meetup to 555-888. And we are back. All right, so the final five. Number one is... What's the most creative deal you've done, Ike? I think it's the first one. The very first one, the deal that I did was uh, a deal that I literally fell into. As I said that, when I started off, um, I was in the process of trying to do everything. I wanted to do an entire deal completely by myself. And I ran into that cash 22 where I had investors lined up, but no deal coming through. Um, At that point is when I approached Joe and I said, you know what, in the next deal that you do, can you include me? I've got investors lined up. So we've got a possibility of doing a larger deal together and um, where your investors and mine together, we can make it happen. So um, that was, a, that was a, um, a deal that became creative for one simple reason, that even though I had investors lined up, really when the rubber meets the road, things can change. Mm-hmm. So even though I had a million lined up, um, at the first pass, only 400,000 actually came through. 600,000 worth of investors decided to sit back and watch and say, let me wait for the next deal because I'm not 100% sure. Mm -hmm. And you have to be prepared for that. So at that point, I had to change my entire process. I had to basically, um, you know, work on the people who had committed on helping them understand the value of it, as well as those who were sitting on the fence. Um, It was not about trying to convince someone to do something they didn't want to do. Mm -hmm. It was more about convincing them about there is no real, nothing gained by waiting, right? If, if, you're, if you can't trust me today, you can't trust me the next one either. So if you know me well, if you understand me, if you trust what I'm presenting to you, the next deal is going to look exactly the same as the first one. And if you're looking for results, I have results from the passive investments I've already made. Mm-hmm. So there was that, that change in education process I had to do very rapidly in literally a one-week period to fill up that gap that I, I saw, you know, unexpectedly encountered. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What would have happened, Ike, if, if you told your sponsor that you were going to raise a million and you ended up raising 400000 If that was the end, what would have happened? I think it would have been a good conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that we um, had already decided what that would be. I think now we have a process for it where, you know, at the end of the day, when you raise money, you are you have to be part of the general partnership, right? That's that's a given. But I think what happens is your role then becomes much smaller if you're not able to meet your target. So you have to be prepared for that. That you know, if you are coming in purely as the person who's going to be the investor management person, and if you're not able to meet the investor obligation, then you have to go in with a smaller general partnership role than you had envisioned to start with. What would that be? Have you heard of a clawback provision? I have not. What is that? Um, a clawback provision is something set in place onto the paperwork of the operating agreement ahead of time, mm-hmm. where it says that Ike has a few responsibilities, and if he does half of his responsibilities, we're going to claw back some of the equity that we were going to give him. So instead of maybe 10% of GP, if you did 400,000, we already have a provision that says we're going to take, take all of, we're going to take you out of it, or we're going to take it down to half of what we originally 
something okay. like that. Uh, good thing to look into on, on both sides if you're passive or if you're a money raiser, certainly. And sure. if you're an operator and you have money raisers, you want to just know what, a, what that is. Um, our, uh, the next question that I have for you is, what is a book that you recommend to the listeners? Well, my all-time favorite book, to be honest, is a book I read when I was uh, 19 uh, called How to Influence People, How to Win Friends and Influence People. It was by Dale Carnegie. Um, really small little book. It was written probably in the 60s or 70s, but timeless advice. Um, and it is reflected a lot in many of the books today, which is think about bringing value to others first before you think about yourself. That's perfect. I, I like that. And I've seen, as we've been asking you questions today, uh, your answers are, are, would definitely be reflecting that you've read this book. So uh, yeah, I appreciate that a lot. Okay, so we got five years. I like this question. Think back where you were, Ike, five years ago from today, and then where will you be in five years? Well, five years ago, I was um, the chief technology officer of a company in Boston, um, and with no clue that I was going to get into real estate, um, especially multifamily real estate. I didn't even know that it existed as a space. I always thought it was multifamily was owned by these major institutions and you know, people like me are not meant for it. But um, that has changed dramatically. I had never thought that I would be the host of a podcast show. Um, and I would have laughed at anybody who said I would, could be that. <laughs> but I am one today and enjoying it a lot. Where will I be in five years' time? Um, I would certainly want to see my multifamily um, and commercial real estate business grow quite a bit. Um, I'd like to be able to create a, um, I'd like to be at a point where I've got a large investor network to the extent where I can then actually create uh, blind pool funds where we can then place much bigger bets than I'm able to do right now. Um, and potentially, take my podcast to the next level where I've actually created a circle of friendships with people across different types of innovative and creative businesses, but collaborating on a common goal of achieving financial independence for everybody. Great. Thank you. How do you give back? Um, so I give back in two ways. Um, I ensure that, you know, between 10 to 20% of everything I make um, always goes into um, some kind of, um, community charity work. Um, apart from that, I have lately been getting involved over the last year and a half in civic engagement in the, in the community I live in. I've been involved in a leadership program at the Plano Chamber of Commerce where you know, we're trying to engage with local nonprofits, with local um, issues, because I think you have to start local before you can solve world problems. Okay. So trying to put my time there as well. Thank you for sharing that. And the final question on the final five is, how do people find you? How do they reach you? Where will they go to get your podcast or to talk to you about what you're doing? Sure. So my podcast, The Side Business Show, it's available on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, almost all the regular podcasting apps. But I've also got a website called www.ike.show. So that's I-K-E dot show. There's no dot com at the end of it. It's ike.show. And um, you go on that, you can you know, see a lot of my um, episodes as well as uh, a mediums to contact me. My email address is ike at thesidebusiness.show. So ike at thesidebusiness.show. 
All right. Thank you so much. Appreciate that. And it was a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for your time and really just spilling all the beans on your what you're doing in your full-time business of raising funds for uh, other sponsors' deals. And I really, really appreciate who you are and everything that we learned from you today. So thank you for coming on. I hope you have a fantastic day. Until next time, my friend, think outside the box. Thanks, Adam. Thanks for inviting me. I'm Rod Cleef, and I've asked Adam Adams to be an expert on a panel in Chicago. Now, if you're like me and you realize you learn so much better in full immersion at a live event with no distractions and you want to do your next apartment deal, you need to text multifamily to 41411 or go to multifamilybootcamp.com right now. And Adam and I look forward to seeing you in person in Chicago, August 24th through the 26th.